Amen. Can we give Mike and Jesse another hand, please? Yes, we are thankful for that this morning. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm, I think I've met just about everybody in here, but for those of you who I haven't, uh, my name is Greg Baker. I have the privilege of serving our church, of serving Grace Bible Church as a, as a deacon and through teaching our 5th through 8th grade ministry that we call The Bridge. Um, and I also get to preach every once in a while, and I do love to do that. Um, now, don't be surprised if you have a different opinion about me preaching here in about 35 minutes, but, well, maybe sooner. But anyway, it is what it is, so we might as well get started. We are going to get started in the same place that we've been the last couple of weeks, and that's Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, as we go through this series called The Sacred Inversion, where we're talking about the Beatitudes that Jesus teaches us, and seeing that it is contrasting kingdom values with earthly values. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, I I want you to think about getting your fingers a little warmed up. We're going to be doing a little Bible drill this morning. We're going to be flipping back and forth quite a bit, so be ready for that. So here we start in Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil evil things against you. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, you are a mighty and sovereign God. You are holy, just, caring, and merciful. You are God who has proven to us again and again in our lives and through all of redemptive history that you are radically in control and wonderfully committed to your purpose for your people. We confess this morning, dear Lord, that we often forget that. We confess that we are too often an arrogant people who want to solve our own problems, who want to do things our way instead of falling in line with your perfect will. We ask that you would forgive us of these sins and that you would bring us in line with your purpose. We ask that you would bless us with the knowledge, the wisdom, the courage that we need to live in light of who you are. As we work through these scriptures today, I pray that your word would melt the hearts of the people in this room. We ask for righteous conviction from your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would show us our sins so that we may see all the more clearly the depths of your mercy and grace. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or your Bible may say humble or gentle, but that is the statement, that, that this declaration of Jesus that we're going to be looking at this morning. But what does it mean to be meek? Why is Jesus 
laying this down as one of these foundational values of the kingdom of heaven. How are we prone to screw it up? Those are some of the questions that I want to answer this morning, that I want us to ask of ourselves this morning. And I want to frame that by looking at a few hallmarks of what it means to be meek, of what it means to be humble. This is by no means a comprehensive list, but just a few things that I think will be really helpful for us. So if you would, please turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and chapter 12, where we're going to read a story about Moses, who I think you've probably heard of. Um, So I'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They said, Does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, You three come out of the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. I want us to think a little bit about the position that Moses is in right here. This is his brother and sister. These are people he loves and who love him. These are people who came out of Egypt in the Exodus with him. These are people who have seen countless miracles of the Lord with Moses, who saw Moses come down with the law from Mount Sinai, and they have come to criticize him. They have come forward with jealous attacks on his family and his status with the Lord. Things central to Moses' life are being brought into question. And what does he do? How does he react? Well, it really doesn't do anything. In fact, Moses doesn't say anything for this whole passage. The only thing that, the, that he writes about himself is that he was very humble and meek in this time. And so you can see that the first characteristic of a meek man or a meek woman is that the meek are not defensive. The meek are not defensive. I love what John Piper says as he's kind of talking through this passage. He says that meek people have a quality, something like a punching bag. They absorb. They don't punch back. They aren't defensive. But they also aren't fragile. They don't break. You can't hurt it. They just absorb. But why? How? Why, does Mo- why doesn't Moses react harshly with Aaron and Miriam? What would we do in that position? What would you do if someone disrespected you at work? What would you do if someone said you were a bad parent? What, if, what would you do if someone insulted your intelligence? If someone talked bad about your family? What if someone dismissed one of your theological viewpoints? God forbid someone talked bad about your political party. What if they did it on Facebook? The gloves are coming off and the caps lock key is going on. Right? We want to fight. We want to lurch back. We want to go at him. We want to put that sucker in his place. We want to fight because we've misplaced our identity. We want to fight because we have tied up our identity in something other than Christ. But what Moses knew and what meek people understand and realize is that our identity cannot be in anything but him. And the Lord does not need us to fight his battles. Look at this again with me. What's the first thing that we see after Miriam and Aaron's accusations? The scripture says, And the Lord heard it. 
Moses doesn't have to defend himself because he trusts the Lord to do it. The meek don't have to shoot back at people. They aren't defensive because the great God of the universe is their protector. The great God of the universe is their defender. They don't have to because the Lord hears. Read on with me in verse 5. Then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance to the tent, and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them came forward, he said, Listen what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the Lord's anger burned against them, and he left. My servant Moses is faithful to me. My servant Moses sees the form of God. Why weren't you afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses knows and is secure in the fact that he is the Lord's. And the Lord loves and defends his people, so he doesn't have to defend himself. We do not have to defend ourselves. We can live in this same confidence. John 6 says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The meek know that they're safe and secure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The meek are not defensive. Next, I want to go to Psalms in chapter 37. A lot of people who preach on this passage do the whole thing just from Psalms 37, and that was certainly an option for us this morning. But, you know, we just kind of went a different direction. But I want to read a verse to you from the middle of that chapter that I think will seem pretty familiar. It says, But the humble will inherit the land and enjoy abundant prosperity. Blessed, abundantly prosperous, are the meek, or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth, or the land. Now these verses are in different original language, so it's hard to nail down if this is an exact quote. But it probably is. Like, Jesus is obviously calling us to look at this psalm, to reference this psalm. And in this psalm, David lays out a number of descriptions and... um, Commands and also predictions for two groups of people. And those groups of people are the wicked and the meek, or the humble. Now, I don't want to read through the entire psalm, but I do want to just go through a few of these commandments and descriptions quickly. It says, Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. Do not envy those who do wrong. Refrain from your anger. Give up your rage. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way. The wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow. The wicked person schemes against the righteous. Instead, you be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. And he kind of sums up the whole thing in verse 10 and 11, and I'll read it, saying, a little, a little while, and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. 
Being meek is about getting these things right. It's about being slow to anger, about not being defensive like we learned from Moses. Meek people do not get agitated with evildoers. They don't react in anger. They don't have to string the bow. They don't have to draw the sword. The meek are not busybodies. They don't fret. They don't worry, letting every little thing bother them. They don't have to because they trust the Lord. The meek are silent before the Lord. They wait on the Lord. And they don't just wait. They wait expectingly. They wait trusting and knowing that He is their provider. He is their refuge. And again, we ask ourselves, why? Why do God's people get to act this way? Why do the meek wait expectingly on the Lord? And they wait because they trust and they love Him. They know His word, they know His promises, and they believe them. They have more faith in the Lord than in their own understanding of any given situation. They don't have to worry about every little detail. They don't have to tease out every possible contingency. They understand, they have got it into their bloodstream that the Lord of hosts, the God of the universe, has always and will always act in a way or act in the interest of His glory, act in the interest of His kingdom, and therefore act for His people. The meek wait silently and expectantly before the Lord. Next, I want to look at another passage that's here in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's from Matthew chapter 7, and it really lays forth for us another characteristic of what it, of what it means to be meek. And so I'm going to read for us, starting in verse 3. It says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, There's a beam of wood in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Church, we all have our blind spots. We all have places in our lives where sin and biases cloud our judgment. They block out uh, objectivity. And because that, because the meek know that, because the meek understand and even accept that to some extent, the meek are a self-suspicious people. Meek people ask hard questions of themselves before they identify the sins of others. They ask hard questions of themselves before they get angry. It's part of why they don't shoot back. They know that they, could, they, they might just have it wrong. They ask hard questions. They look deeply at their own biases before they defend their own position in a debate or an argument. A meek person actually listens to people. They ask questions of other people. A meek person is ready to change their mind, change their actions based on new information, based on a brother or a sister pointing out their sin. A meek person hasn't tied their identity to worldly things, hasn't tied their identity to what they think or their specific opinions. They've tied their identity to Christ. And so they are totally, sometimes painfully aware of just how wrong they could have it. In any situation, in a variety of conversations, they know 
that they could have it wrong. They know that just because they believe something and it makes sense doesn't make it true. The meek are self-suspicious. And I commend you to put this into practice. This may be more than any of the others is a muscle we can exercise, right? This is something that we can intentionally slow down. Listen before making judgment. Take a step back and ask hard questions. We can go into a discussion and be intentional about just listening, about actually thinking about what the other person has to say, actually trying to learn from someone instead of just figuring out a way to one-up them, figuring out a way to win the argument, figuring out a way to outsmart somebody. Think about how rare it is to actually be listened to. Think about how rare it is and how awesome it feels. We can love people in such a beautiful way that this world is dying for just by listening, truly listening, truly longing to understand, to sympathize, to empathize with someone. C.S. Lewis summed it up like this. He says, If we were ever to meet a truly humble person... We would not come away from that conversation thinking about how humble they were. We would come away from that conversation thinking about how interested they were in us. Because at its core, gospel humility is not about thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It is just about thinking of yourself less often. And this characteristic, this self-forgetfulness is what I want to talk about next. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to to 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, we're going to read a little bit longer passage from Paul that I think is really going to get us to this idea of self-forgetfulness. It says, A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. See, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, or I'm not conscious of anything against myself. But I'm not justified by that. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who who will both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person or another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? I wanted to take us to this passage last, church, because Paul just gives us such a concrete, real-world example of what happens when we get this wrong, right? He's heard from the Corinthian church um, that there's been this infighting, that there's been this competition based on who taught them first, what teacher they learned other, whether it was Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Peter, um, 
And if we're going to dig into that, if we're going to get that, I think a critical piece of understanding this, of understanding what it really means to be meek, is to understand the nature of the human ego, which I can assure you is the opposite of meek. And Paul does that for us really helpful, or is really helpful in letting us see that in verse 6, where he says, I'm speaking to you, I'm writing this to you, to eliminate the foundation of this problem. That I'm not going to talk about all the fighting up here. I'm going to talk about why you're fighting. And why you're fighting is this arrogance. And that arrogance is kind of a weird word. When we look in the Greek, it's fusiao, which I'm sure I said wrong. But it's actually a verb. And it means to like blow up or inflate, almost like a bellows, right? And you kind of look at it and you're like, man, you know, Paul, that you're the only guy in the whole Bible to use this word. <laughs> I think maybe you meant hubris, right? Which means we would translate as pride. Pride, that's the problem, isn't it? And the answer is no, that, that's not all of it. That Paul uses this word very deliberately. He uses this word because he wants us to think about it. He uses this word because there's something to this tangible, maybe even biological term of being overinflated, of being blown up, of being stretched, maybe even swollen. Now while we're on the topic of, topic of swollen, I love basketball. And one of my favorite basketball players to ever play was Dwayne Wade. He was a shooting guard for the Miami Heat. He was awesome. But at the end of, the, at the end of his career, the knees got a little cranky. The knees got a little cranky. And he would have to take man, every third game, sometimes every other game off, just to rest his knees. And I remember, it was late in the season, I think 2013, they're trying to make a playoff spot, he's not getting his extra rest, and at one point, the medical staff reported that the day after a game, they drained two cups of fluid out of his knees. Think about that. Think about how bad that would hurt. Think about how you would immediately know that something has gone terribly wrong. Right? Think about trying to put weight on it. Think about just the way you would protect it. Like, don't even look at it. Don't get close to me. Don't touch it. Just get away from it. Right? It just, it's wrong. It doesn't work. That's not how it's supposed to be. And that's what our egos are like. They're painful. They're defensive. They're fragile. They are ready to pop. At a moment's notice, they are swollen and overinflated. Or they've already popped. Some of you may be thinking, I'm not arrogant. I'm not puffed up. All I can think about is how much of a disappointment I am to people. Maybe you know people self-deprecating all the time. They can never take a compliment. But church, that is not humility. That is not a proper understanding of who we are in Christ. That is not meekness. That is not having confidence in our position before the Lord. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, and he gets quoted a lot up here. He, he says it this way. He says a superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same thing. They are both the result of being overinflated. The person with the superiority or complex is overinflated and in danger of being deflated. And the person with the inferiority complex is deflated already. 
whether we are arrogant and proud or deflated and looking for the next person to tell about our bad day or whatever happened, we are a self-absorbed people. We are a self-absorbed people. And Paul says that we have to eliminate that. And he demonstrates for us the gospel-centered alternative. And if you'll look again at verse 3, it says, It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul does not care what other people think. Paul does not care what other people think or what they say or if he's better, smarter, funnier, richer than any of them. Paul says that on the contrary to what all the self-help books, all the self-esteem books will, will tell you, it's not even about what he thinks of himself. He hasn't gone from from arrogance to self-deprecation. Paul doesn't call us to go from prideful to pitiful. He calls us to move from self-absorbedness to self-forgetfulness. The weak are self-forgetful. Like Paul, their egos, their self-regard just operate on a totally different set of rules, a totally different basis. Meek people don't have to worry about their failures. But they also don't have to count their accomplishments. They don't have to compare themselves to others because they just don't really think about themselves. They've gotten it through their thick skulls that all the stuff that flies around in the world, all the stuff that gets us all worked up, they are tiny, temporary speed bumps in front of an eternal God. Even their own sin cannot derail them. Even their own sin cannot destroy their identity. And why not? Because they didn't just read verse 3. They read verse 4, where it said, It is the Lord who judges me. They understand and believe, they've gotten into their souls, that the only thing that matters, the only judgment that matters, the only verdict that matters, is the judgment of God. And most importantly, they have faith and confidence that when God judges them, he will not see them. He will see the righteousness of Christ. The meek have gone back to the first two Beatitudes. They have recognized that they are poor in spirit, bankrupt, and fully dependent on Christ. The meek have mourned over their sin and the sin of the world around them. Now at this point, you may be kind of thinking to yourself, I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if that can be all true. I mean, you're saying this meek person, they're not defensive. They, they don't get angry. They're not assertive. They're always doubting themselves. How can that be true? I don't think Jesus wants us to be a bunch of wimps. I mean, how can Jesus call us to be meek? How can Jesus say that he is meek and humble and then turn over the tables in the temple? How can he deal so harshly with the Pharisees? This just doesn't line up, and that's a really good point. This is a difficult nuance of this principle. But it is true, no matter how difficult it is, that meekness and weakness are not the same thing. It doesn't mean that we're spineless. We aren't supposed to absorb those blows. We aren't supposed to absorb critique because we're scared. 
We aren't supposed to absorb blows because we're weak. We shouldn't let us, people walk over us in conversation because we aren't confident in what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us. We aren't supposed to turn the other cheek like Jesus is going to tell us later in chapter 5 because we're powerless. And Jesus makes that clear to us in the very word that he uses in the Beatitudes. That word, humble, or meek, or even gentle, if you're an OG reading the NASB, is praus. That one I pronounced right. And it's a word used to describe a horse ready for battle. Horses that could gallop 35 miles an hour and stop on a dime. Horses that were not scared of arrows or of torches or of spears. Horses that cared for nothing but the command of their master. This sort of restrained power, this capable obedience, appointed gentleness, is a huge part of what it means to be meek. And how much more true of that should that be of us than of a war horse who was already big and strong and powerful before it was broken, before it had a master. But we, we derive our power. We derive our capability and our courage from our master. Right? At every juncture this morning, we've talked about that meekness flows from an understanding of who we are in Christ. And Romans 8 would tell us that in Christ we are made more than conquerors. Not more than conquerors because we always win, not because we always come out on top. The blood of the martyrs in Revelation that cries out to the Lord and receives its white robes, those are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors because we can stand above it all, above the hustle and bustle, above the hyper-emotionality. We can stand confidently and securely, speaking gently, to those who disagree with us, listening to those who disagree with us, asking hard questions of ourselves, and trusting trusting the Lord with however that's going to turn out, with whatever results He deems best for His kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who aren't defensive, but absorb critique and insult, because they trust in Yahweh, their great defender. Blessed are those who wait patiently on the Lord and take refuge in His timing. Blessed are those who search their hearts for sin and bias because they know the depths of their own misunderstanding. Blessed are the self-forgetful who see their own inconsequence in light of an infinite God and merciful Savior who has replaced their filthy rags with His righteousness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth But what does that last part mean, church? That they shall inherit the earth. Does it simply mean that they're going to go to heaven? I mean, it certainly does mean that. Jesus encourages disciples in John 14 by saying, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. 
we've talked over and over, probably more times than you wanted to hear it, about meekness being a result of knowing who we are as God's people, and in, li- and in light of what Christ has done for us. And part of that is that we are children, co-heirs of Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. That we shall inherit the earth. But there is something more than that here, church. There is a promise that is to encourage us and sustain us here in this life as well. I think we would all agree that if we took a general consensus of the world, it would be that the best way to get ahead is to look out for number one. Is to be selfish. Is to focus on oneself in order to amplify our triumphs. In order to diminish our failures and our faults. And Jesus wanted the people that were listening him to know that that's flipped on its head in the kingdom of the Lord. But it's also not going to work here. Part of calling us back to Psalms 37 is that we read the verse, the little that the righteous person has, present tense, is better than the abundance of many wicked people. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord supports the righteousness of the righteous. This phrase, the arms of the wicked being broken, this is talking about laboring and striving in vain. It's saying that joy in life cannot come from riches won through deceit and selfishness and laboring under the sun. And if you don't believe me, I would ask that you refer back to the entire book of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Chad taught about it last summer. Just listen to it. It's great. You'll believe me. Listen to this. Meekness towards God is the disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. Accepting that his dealing with us are good and therefore without disputing or resisting and therefore obeying. The same trust that makes us silent before the Lord that allows us to wait patiently and expectantly for the Lord, that same trust that makes us meek produces joyful contentment. Our lives become so much richer when we allow others to speak into our lives without being offended, when we get to learn from people, when we get to listen to people. Think about how peaceful your life would be if you were not constantly worrying about what other people thought of you. Think about all the guilt you could wash from your heart if you actually believed that your sin was gone, that it was actually nailed on a cross, that it was actually defeated. That is our inheritance in this land. A life lived knowing that a sovereign God loves you and cares for you and is working all things for your good. Now, as we, as we kind of wrap up, I, I want to take one step back from all of this, and I want to ask us a hard question. And that question is, are you one of God's people? I hope that as we read this morning and talked through these scriptures, you saw a really hopeful, wonderful picture of what it means to live a meek life. A life free from much of the worry and the busyness and the guilt that comes from our self-absorbed world. But I also hope that you heard that that can only come if you are first a child of God. 
And finally, let me tell you that you have nothing to do but surrender your life to him and you will be. You have only to see the sin in your heart that you already know is there, that I already know is there, and you have to ask for that payment or the payment for that sin to be paid by another, for that payment to be by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That has to come first. Without that, without repentance from and forgiveness for sins, all this other stuff, it doesn't matter. It can't happen. It doesn't matter if it happens. If you have any questions about that, I'm going to be in the backhand corner of the room. I would love to talk with you more. I would love to answer any questions you have. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you again for the opportunity to open your scriptures. We thank you for the gift. I thank you for the gift of self-forgetfulness. I thank you that we can come up and we can, we can sing songs. We can reflect on you. We can think deeply on you. We can examine you and your word. Examine our lives without fear of man without fear of what we're going to sound like or look like. Instead, trusting and knowing that you're just and righteous to forgive us of our sins when we come to you. I ask that that would penetrate to the hearts of these people this morning, that they would live in the light of who you are and what you've done, the way that you've loved them. And we do love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.